You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business Unusual. So welcome to the Topco Business Unusual podcast, and it's going to be very unusual today. We've got John Sane, who is with us, author and public speaker, entrepreneur, she's cyclist, uh, healthy eater. (laughs) (laughs) So it's probably been two years since I've spoken to you. I think I looked at the diary, it was like, um, I think it was November 2018, the last time we saw each other. So yeah, how are you doing? Hi. I'm, I'm really well, thank you. You know, when you speak about 2018, it does really feel like from another book, not even another chapter, just another book. It just seems like it seems 100 years ago. Um, but yeah, good to see you again. Like I did mention off air, you're looking fit and healthy. And only now <laughs> do I know that you're some world champion cyclist and runner. I had no idea. So congratulations with all that stuff. Good to be here with you today. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think we were talking like... Uh... All success comes at a cost, right? At some stage, like it's it's not all uphill, and and normally it comes through some sort of failure as well. So I I know that you know you're a celebrated sort of speaker and entrepreneur and publisher, and I want to get into all of that sort of stuff. But I mean, what 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 got you there? What sort of do you think was that that motion? Because to get up on stage and to take the time to write a book and be in front of a lot of people, a lot of people are scared of that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it is a scary thing. I mean, I got to be honest. The very first time I did it, um, I don't drink alcohol, right? Uh, I've never have. It just doesn't suit my my brain structure. Um, I did try in high school many times. Trust me, it just never worked for me. But I mean, I I, I got invited to do my first big public talk. Like I was about in front of three four hundred people. It was really exciting, but I was so incredibly nervous. I went past the Woolies and bought the cheapest white wine I could get my hands on and uh, down this half a bottle of wine uh, to before I went on the stage. And look, because not, I don't drink, I can't even remember the talk itself. But look, trust me, the first few times were incredibly nerve wracking. And I'm not going to take that away. But the truth is, it's, it's, it's almost like, um, and, I've, and I've heard other authors say this about books, it's almost like you have this thing inside you that you need to get rid of. It's almost like you need to purge this sense this idea this basket of of thoughts that have been building up for so long that you almost like to need to expel it out your system and giving a talk and writing a book are very similar for me because they both give me this opportunity to take all these this information that i've gathered and to share it with audiences both in speaking as well as in writing so for me now it's almost a very self selfish process because it gives me an opportunity to curate my thinking get it out my system so i can make space for the new book and the new talk for sure i mean obviously before this i was looking looking at some of your content and it's just amazing how you sort of engage with the audience even though like a lot of it so some was on stage and some was on like webinars and that sort of stuff but you've got this amazing ability to engage and to i think there's a lot of empathy there and we were talking earlier about some of your challenges personally. Do you, do you think it sort of comes from that? Do you think it comes from that, that looking within of the challenges that you had? 
Yeah, thank you so much for that. I mean, I I think it's exactly that. I think what I'm able to do is take pain and alchemize it pretty quickly. And I and I don't know why I'm good at it because I just I have been the the pain from my bankruptcy when I was 30 was incredibly painful. It took me a few years to get out of that depression, but I alchemized it. My divorce when I turned 40 six months to a year of just incredible pain, but I alchemized it. And I think I can only write and only speak about things that I have been through. And only once I've healed them, can I share them? So I can't actually speak about my divorce while I'm going through it. But now it's quite comfortable. You know, I went through a lot of things that I think a lot of men go through in marriage. You know, it's there's, there's difficulties uh, because one, we have a new world of relationships called Tinder and Instagram and Facebook. And then on the other side of it, you have old trauma and old lineage issues that your father didn't deal with that he had in his marriage and his father had in his marriage. And so you have this very big toy that happens inside marriages that'll make them very, very difficult. And they were definitely for me. So I think it is that ability to take those lessons and turn them around and then share them with audiences that gives me a, a sense of, look, I'm with you on this journey. I know what pain you're going through. Here's what I did with it and see whether it actually suits you to want to apply those as well. So we've got a bit of a reputation here, like at 30, it was bankruptcy, 40, it was divorce. What's, I mean, we've gone through COVID, right? So that's the 50s <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to preempt anything. I'm, I'm, I'm looking good. I'm healthy. I'm not in a relationship. I've got money, but you know, so I'm okay. But uh Look, each one of them have catalyzed me in a different way. And uh, each one of them have been a sort of a gift wrapped in sandpaper. You know, when you're initially going through them, they're incredibly difficult. But, you know, eventually they do. They do alchemize into something beautiful. But, I mean, so so what do you think you learned from those two things? Because I think financial intelligence, one of the things that I've learned is certainly it's not taught at school. There's so many people who are gifted, who are very good at their careers, who maybe are high flyers. Um, top executives earning a lot of money, but they just struggle to spend less than what they earn, essentially. They struggle financially to manage themselves. Have you have you looked into that part of things? Because I know you look into the future, but I mean, you would have probably learned a lot about. Yeah, look, I think the thing with the relationship with money, definitely, I now run a masterclass called Your Money in Motion because I did so much work in the money realm to try and understand what my relationship was with money, firstly, Secondly, where did I learn it from and where did I pick it up from? And then thirdly, to reestablish the relationship with money. And so money for me has always been this thing that our family struggled with. You know, my mom was a single mom family. There was always anxiousness around not making it to the end of the month. And so this expectation was birthed in me as my family had that same sort of lessons that they didn't heal themselves. And so for me, it's very much around two very clear things around money. One the intention, the cadence, and the container. In other words, how much money do you want to make? In what intervals do you want to make it? And how can you contain it? And many people, like you said, make a lot of money, but can't contain the money. They almost like have, it's like a sieve. It it washes through their bank accounts. Other people don't think their bank accounts are big enough to hold enough that much money. That's why people who win uh, lottos lose all of it again, because it suffocates them that much money. You know, building a relationship with wealth is a, is a major thing that many of us think we're good at, but many of us don't know how to do it. The second thing that we need to realize is that money needs a frequency. And the frequency that I teach in the masterclass is called excitement, ease, and love. So when you think about money, are you excited? 
And are you at ease? And do you love money? But most people are not excited. They're depressed. And most people are not at ease. They're anxious. And most people are not in love, but in fear. And so when you have the emotional frequency of those three, you can never make money. It doesn't matter how hard you work. And then when you have the equation or the, the, the sort of the excitement, ease, and love going on, you create the container for your good friend to come and spend time with you. Imagine you had a friend that you were always depressed with that wasn't coming to spend time with you, always anxious where they were and fearful that they would never come back. That friend yeah. wouldn't want to hang with you. So sure. there's, there's very clear ideas around money that I've developed and learned over the last few years and I apply them now. And, and I think that's also become part and parcel of the success that I've created is that my world is a crowded world in what I do. And so how do you stand out and how do you get yourself to become a premium brand in this world besides doing good work and having sort of surprising and, and sort of exciting uh, information to share, you also need the container, the intention and the cadence of how much you want to make, how often you want to make it and how can you contain it? I think that's a good point though. I mean, I think you have really become a, a very strong brand. And I was going to ask, is that intentional? And I remember the last time we met, you had the darker glasses, the black ones, and they were very powerful. And there's billboards all over the place with you. And and so it, it, was that intentional? That Was that conscious, that, that brand building of yours and, and building up this John Sane brand? Was that um, look, it's always been something that came naturally to me without me even realizing it, Rolf. You know, I, from a very young age, I, I was quite conscious of that um, brand building exercise. And, and whenever I do my, you know, all these aptitude tests, um, I always land up with that one number that is very much about being conscious of what message you're putting out into the world. And this has put me to good stead because... I've really been particular about building a premium brand. Um, every single touch point that I use has to be one that is more luxurious, more exciting, more seamless to work with. And I don't build according to budget. I build according to experience. So if you ever watch me live, you'll know I've got some of the best slides in the world. And I, and I honestly do because every time I give a talk, people are like, my God, your slides are unbelievable because I've really spent money, time and effort that every single slide is intelligent. There's something going on in it that gets your brain to think about. So I want to become prolific at storytelling. And in the process of becoming prolific, I have to manage the brand meticulously. And, and I do, you know, all my team members know exactly what the brand stands for. And we're not a cheap brand. We don't aim to be yeah. a cheap brand. We aim to be a premium experience. So funny because I, I was reading a book or listening to a podcast and they, and they spoke about the most successful people, the people you should employ or work with. The, the one value that they should have is conscientiousness. And so it's that meaning like I care about this. I want to do better. Mm -hmm. um, and so are you finding that the sort of people that you engage with, if they have that personality trait, the people who are going to your talks, the people who are getting involved in your masterclasses, they're the people who, who want to get better? So there's a couple, a couple of things there. One, uh, there's a great saying that says, uh, your actions are so loud, I can't hear a word you say. And I think it's important to embody the message. And I think that genuineness and authenticity comes across because, and my friends all say to me behind the scenes is like, you know, everything you're talking about, I see you do. And so maybe people in the public don't know that, but I am doing everything that I'm talking about because otherwise it's, it's disingenuous. I think that people that come to me and work with me, I have been very specific about what sort of clients I want to work with. 
And this again goes down to intentionality of who you want to work with, you know, and, you know, there's three types of personal trainers. There's personal trainers that make uh, larger people thin. There's personal trainers that make thin people fit. And there's personal trainers that make fit people athletes. I am a personal trainer that make fit people athletes. And I want to work people that are already conscientious, but want to super superpower themselves, you know, in a certain way. And I kind of feel that's where my journey's at. You know, I've been doing so much self-reflection and self-work for the last 15 years since my bankruptcy that I'm in that position that I'm not suffering. I'm not broken. I just want to get better. And so, yes, yeah. the people that come to me hopefully are in that space, um, yeah. but usually they are. And that's because of my intentionality of who I want to work with. And I mean, you say it's like a fit person to an athlete. And so I sort of was that unfit person and I became this athlete and I got a coach that actually helped me to it. So I, I agree with the analogy. But the, we also talk around how COVID and pre-COVID, everybody was going for growth and profits. And so what, what do you see an athlete in business being? What are the attributes? Because an athlete generally is about winning at all costs. And so I've done that as well. And I've seen some of the upside, but also the, the downside. I've, you know, I've got shingles and I got sick. And so those, and I got, so those sorts of things are the outcomes if you're not looking after yourself and you're not healthy as well. It needs to be training, but in a way that you're not destroying your body. So there's a great saying. It says, are you running away from the darkness or are you running towards the light? You know, from the outside, it looks exactly the same. One is fueled by anxiousness and one is fueled by excitement. And before I answer your question in full, I want to backtrack to the 14th century. And in the 14th century, we had the Black Death. And the Black Death wiped out most of Europe. And with it, also black, wiped out the feudalism, their capitalism of the day. It gave birth to a brand new socioeconomic system, the beginning of a type of middle class, rather than having super rich and super poor, right? But also what it did most importantly was begin the process of us having enough energy, creativity, and comforts in our life to start to celebrate beauty, art, and knowledge in the form of the Italian Renaissance. This Italian Renaissance gave birth to all these new things that were never available to us because we we're trying to survive. Now, all of a sudden, we're able to not just survive, but celebrate something new and look up to something new. Yeah. If we think about what COVID-19 has done now, it's wiping out the old socioeconomic system. It started mm -hmm. off as a virus, but it's mutated to become a much bigger play that is happening around the world. And we can see this because every establishment has been questioned from the royal family yeah. that we just saw recently to the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Arab Spring, the GameStop movement, all of these old structures, the Catholic Church universities, name it. Every single structure is imploding, cracking, and falling down because people are standing up and talking about it. So we are moving towards a new renaissance. And the beginning of a renaissance is always the end of a death. And we are in, right now, the death of an old world. And this new renaissance that's coming out, for me, is not about so much winning, but accessing your uniqueness. This new renaissance for me is the celebration of our genius as human beings. You know, the world we come from required us to study and get a job and to fit in to society's structures and pockets. You weren't really celebrated as an entrepreneur in the 50s and 60s. You know, you were celebrated because you had a degree and you got a job that was a good job. 
But now what we are is living in a surplus society, a surplus of similarly trained people working for similar organizations, creating similar products. It's all pretty much commoditized. So yeah. I think that when we come out of COVID and even now, when you can yeah. access your genius through the gateway of curiosity and excitement, you then start to access a new type of energy. And in that space, you can only collaborate because there is no competition in a world where you've accessed your genius. And now you start to win, but not win at the expense of the rest of everything else, but because of you accessing that part of you. So for yeah. me, the new renaissance is coming and post of it, post post COVID, it's about this that's winning. The win the structure of winning is changing. And so this is what my yeah. new book's about, 10,000 days. It's about what are we measuring as success? Are you still yeah. stuck in the old way of measuring success or are you looking at the world in a new way? Yeah. And I saw your other book as well. You did a collaboration. So it's interesting you talk around um, collaboration, but you, you, I mean, you have done that. So how hard is that to reach out and be vulnerable and to ask for help and to ask for insights when you, I mean, you're talking about the economics part of the book and how you felt like you didn't know everything. And I thought that was really cool that you, you had that, you know, epiphany, I suppose, like, I don't know everything. I've studied a lot of this stuff, but I can't defend every part of this. And then collaborating. How, how so, hard or how, yeah. how, do you have principles yeah. for that? Yeah, look, it was the first time I actually collaborated. And it was because, you know, the whole book Future Next came about because customers were kept asking me over COVID, how can we take go back to normal? And I kept saying, why do you <laughs> want to go back to normal? Like, why, why would you want to go back to normal? Normal is just familiar. It's not great. If you think about it, none of us spent enough time with our families. A lot of us were taking pharmaceutical drugs. A lot of us were drinking too much. A lot of, you know, we were doing things to try and dull the pain and the trauma and all that sort of stuff, you know, and, and we were celebrating the wrong things, the celebration of more. And I don't think that's really the right way to be celebrating. So I started writing the book and I started talking about the mental and emotional tools to become okay with uncertainty. And then I started writing the second part of the book around a new socioeconomic system where we wanted yeah. to develop something that we could all participate in that's more fair and more just to people around yeah. the world. We're actually living in a type of feudalism again. It's called the techno yeah. feudalism where we have all these super rich tech people and then everybody else. And so how do we develop a new socioeconomic system? And then I started writing it and I realized, oh my God, I know very little. I just, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna be able to get this book out because I just don't know. So I reached out to Iraj Abedian, who's really well known in South Africa, wrote the South African constitution with Tabo Mbeki, very well respected. And I said to him, and I know him. So I said to him, look, can you, can you just read this part of the book for me and just tell me what you think, you know? Yeah. He said, look, I, I, I share your principles. I know what you're trying to say, but you've got three big fundamental mistakes here because of this, this, and this. And I was like, okay, do you want to write it with me? He's like, yeah, 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 I'll write it with you. So, so uh, he came on board. And what we had to do with Iraj, because he's such a powerhouse of information, we had to dumb him down. Like, Iraj, too, yeah. much, too much detail, too much academia. And so the yeah. way your academia answers a question is just to make sure that he's – counterparts can't call him out to find a hole in Evia's answer. So he answers yeah. something in 18 different ways before he gives you the answer. So we had to dumb all that down to try and make it more yeah. readable for the man on the street. Yeah. So yeah, it was yeah. fun. Uh, my next book is not a collaboration, but in terms of collaboration, Rolf, yeah. I'm collaborating with everybody in my world because yeah. you can't do what I do. 
And I'm not scared that you're going to try and do what I do because you just can't do it. So how can I help you? And if you speak to other speakers or other authors, I'm always helping them all the time because they just can't do it like I can do it. So I'm not fearful of, of them I don't know, competing against me. I don't think there is. Competing. That. So, I mean, I did see as well that obviously that experience of dumbing some of these, these writers, you know, these academics views and dumbing it down for laymen to implement. Because I see that's, you know, you read a lot. I also read a lot. And I, and I think there's two things that really stand out for me. One is that why don't other people know this shit? Like, there's some principles like, why don't they know this? I'm like, I get, yeah. I get crazy. And I think the, that's the one part. The other part is sometimes I'm like, I read one book and then you read somebody else and it's like, you're a bit confused. It's like, where are we going with this? Is it this or is it this? Yeah. So you obviously yeah. found a little bit of a niche um, around dumbing down these books and these principles. Is there any that you think are universal for success that you think are important for people to read? Are there books that you think you would recommend to your children or to young people? Yes, absolutely there are. Um, the first book that I always recommend whenever I'm asked this sort of question is a book called 40 Rules of Love. And it's got absolutely nothing to do with business. It's got everything to do with how we give ourselves permission to feel love. And in the book, they have a road trip that Hafez and Rumi go on in the 12th century. And it's a road trip that they're walking between cities and villages. And what they do is they explain, actually, I'm getting goosebumps even talking about it. The book really made an impact on me. It makes me emotional thinking about it. But what it did was it showed me the 40 types of love and the fact that you can give yourself permission to feel love more often. You know, Ralph, you, 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 we often think, you know, you remember when you were younger and you were dating, you wouldn't tell somebody I love them too quickly because it was just like this holy grail of emotional, like, you know, a, 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 um, a line in the sand. What I realized after reading that book, I can give myself permission to be more in love with more things more often. And so that in itself just was a fantastic anchor point into emotional management rather than being so strict with yourself, right? Yeah. The second book that I always speak about is uh, Habits by James Clear, Atomic Habits, yeah. Um, yeah. a phenomenal book around. And if you listen to the backstory, it took him years and years and years to write that book. And just understanding that you are made up of rituals, habits and behaviors, and you yeah. don't have to eat the elephant in one go. You can just change certain rituals, habits and behaviors. And I'm not talking about waking up at 5 a.m. I'm talking about thinking like a victim or thinking like you're entitled or yeah. thinking that you're not good enough. Those small things are rituals and habits. And so the self-talk and the self-conversation that we have with ourselves is critical when it comes to business, you know, and just life in general. So I like to mix this, I call it modern wisdom. I like to mix yeah. this ancient know thyself theory and, 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 and wisdom with yeah. understanding future of work and the future of technology and business strategy. And this combination allows us to create seamless abundance rather than anxious abundance. It allows sure. us to create exciting businesses rather than running away from places we don't want to be. So I think that mix is critical yeah. as we come out of COVID. It's like stop yeah. measuring success like you used to because it didn't really work that well. So, I mean, that's quite tough, right? Because, I mean, I was, I was listening to you when you said that, and I was thinking, wow, I mean, it sounds great. Don't measure it like you used to. But I'm thinking, then what do we measure it against? Um, and, and 
So for me, we spoke earlier, um, my, you know, my brother-in-law passed away in December and it was quite horrific because it was locked down. He passed away at my son's 21st birthday. And I was really in that vulnerable stage. I think I closed the business early. I said, like, listen, it's, this is crazy what's happening and it's scary. And I remember we took leave and I'd been planning all year that come December, I'm going to not react so much. I'm going to plan for 2021 and I'm going to, guys, come back to work and I'm going to have it all sorted. I'm going to know everything. Don't worry. The plan's going to be there. It's going to be there. And, and over December, I normally calm down. I read and then I have this ritual and then I come up with a plan, right? Like this is what we're going to do. And December came and I was like, she's guys. And I, I started phoning my other CEO friends and saying, hey, listen, I'm really struggling with this stuff. Are you? Like, what's, what's the story here? They're like, no, Ralph, <laughs> we're also struggling. This is, yeah. this is for real. So, I mean, yeah. where do you see this plan? We obviously know that mm. through habits, rituals are important. But if you don't mm. know what rituals you want, how do you start mm. building that capability? Mm. Okay. So there's two questions there. You initially started, how do you start measuring something new? And then you're asking, how do you start building new rituals? So I'll, I'll, I'll start with the first one. Um, Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck. Anti-Fragile mm. by Nassim Taleb. Both yeah. these books talk to us indirectly about something that Mark Huberman, who's an um, unbelievable neuroscientist from Stanford, talks about this thing that our brains has called dopamine prediction error. And what has happened is we have been trained as a humanity to only give ourselves dopamine at the result of an outcome. So even when our kids are studying or when we were studying and our parents told us, look, I don't care if you're studying hard or not. If you don't get an A, you're full of shit. And so this, this idea that we weren't giving ourselves any kudos throughout the process of struggle and only waiting to the end of it is what Dr. Mark Huberman calls a dopamine prediction error. It's an error. So what we have is the choice of when we want to give ourselves dopamine. And so when you read Carol Dweck and Nassim Taleb, what are they saying? Growth mindset means I enjoy the challenge. Yeah. Nassim Taleb says when you drop and you're anti-fragile, you grow, you enjoy it, you become more mm -hmm. powerful. If you think about the guys, David Goggins, the guy who, you know, that crazy athlete dude, he talks about how he got through the Navy SEALs is because he enjoyed the challenge. And in the process mm. of enjoying the challenge, he gave himself more dopamine, which gave him more energy. Mm. So it's, like it's failing that fast. idea. It, it, it's iterating, revealing and iterating and revealing, iterating. And it's like, it's that process and enjoying that process. Yeah. So that's how you change it. No, it's, yeah. it's, we've given ourselves, it's an, it's an error, what we've done with our dopamine. It's not something that, that is set in stone. We can change it. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I, I okay. think the challenge sometimes I think yeah. is that you've got people who enjoy that, who embrace it, but in collaborative teams, there's other people who maybe, uh, maybe struggle with that, maybe have the fixed mindset as opposed to that growth mindset. And so there may be, in that particular area, it doesn't mean they're completely fixed or completely growth, but in that area, they're not thinking that way. And so then there's those, those challenges, right? Getting the team, the well, whole this, team this moving. This is the transition we're in, right, Rolf, is we have one foot in the past and one foot in the future. 
And so people are struggling. Some people are struggling to let go of the shore. You know, their transformation is holding on to what they know. They suffer from confirmation bias. So they want to stay with what they know continuously. They're fearful of letting go to move into the next stage of transformation. And so really your job as a leader, my job as a leader is to try and get people to be okay with leaving the shore and understanding that transformation always has three stages. It has the sad, the strange, and the adventure. You have to be sad to let go of the familiar. And then you have to arrive in a place of strangeness when nothing makes sense and there's no anchor points and that's okay. And then start the new adventure. So our jobs as leaders is to try and help people and guide them through this transformation because you don't have a choice, to be honest, because it's happening whether you like it or not. And the longer you hold on to it, the more shit you're going to be in, right? Okay, so let's move on to your idea about rituals, habits, and behavior. And, and for this, what I have done is I've yeah. moved myself from motivation to discipline. And there's a massive difference between motivation and discipline. And most people don't know the difference. But for me is when you've decided who you want to be, and then you work backwards, you have discipline. When you haven't decided who you want to be and you keep going linearly from A to B to C to Z, you then need motivation to keep you moving. I learned this from Michael Jordan watching that unbelievable mm. documentary on Netflix. And what he said in it was, yes, I've got goosebumps again. Uh, what he said in it was, I make a 100% commitment. I don't suffer from decision fatigue and my discipline becomes obvious. Mm. And you know, when you've decided that you want to enter a race, waking up at 4.30 is not a question anymore. It is just what you do. Your rituals have automatically changed because of the end result that you've decided that you want to gain. Okay. And so in a world where we have this uncertainty of COVID, we often don't have the, the gift or the luxury of anchoring ourselves to a physical future because we have yeah. so much uncertainty. What yeah. I've been doing is anchoring myself to an emotional future. So how can right. I anchor myself into a space of affluence, into a space of freedom, into a space of clarity? And so I can work yeah. backwards and say, well, what sort of rituals and habits bring about that state and then work in those rituals and habits to be able to become more disciplined in my approach? I think that discipline is a big thing, right? And I mean, you spoke about leadership as well. I mean, there's so many interesting things. It's I was speaking to someone the other day, they, they work with about 300 businesses and they, they help them through, you know, either getting them to sell or to make them improve their turnover. And they found over COVID that um, most of their clients did one of two things. It was sort of like, it was that either they, they you know, obviously there were some businesses that they couldn't help at all. Um, but the ones that they could help that could go back to some sort of normalcy, they found that they, they did one of two things. They either really quickly got back to normal, or they sat, They found them, say, stagnant. And they looked at some of their, their insights into the leadership of those companies, because they did personality testing. And they found that they were either the autocratic, which was the one that stayed flat, or the servant leadership, the one that went up. Right? Right. <laughs> I thought it was such, a, such an interesting thing. And I think that we're not, not enough people know about servant leadership. Um, and how they can take on those capabilities. Because the, the funny thing is they can. They can learn these traits. Look, I think one, it's personality. Two, it's the lack of uh, emotional intelligence that we have never been taught. And so, you know, the old idea of old school leadership was, I'll lead the way, follow me, and let's keep going. And those people think they're doing the best they can. They don't realize it's gone. It's outdated. 
And so it's really just about moving from this intelligent, logical mind to a much more powerful, intuitive, excited, and curious decision-making process. And when you're able to have a coherence between heart and mind, you then become very, very powerful. I think many autocratic people are stuck here and they're not able to move out of this logical intelligence. But remember something, Ralph, is in agricultural times, the most important thing you had as a human being was your muscles and your understandings of the seasons and the toiling of the soil. The minute you get into industrial revolution, intelligence and process-driven thinking became the most important thing to bring about economies of scale and efficiency and all those things. But as we start moving into this new quantum dynamic world, intelligence is not most important, but now intuition is. And so we've moved from body to mind to intuition. And so, yes, what did you just say? People that are suffering are still stuck here. The people that are able to see this empathetically are starting to move because they're more moldable and adaptable. And that's what really what intuition is about. It's much more adaptable and optimistic about the future than logic is. Yeah, they had that thing, right? It was like IQ, then EQ. And the the thing that I heard last year was the the AQ, the adaptability quotient. AQ, everybody's looking at, hey, how do we get AQ leaders? and, and some were gifted and, and, and lucky, yeah. like me, and some mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. not so gifted. Look, I think it's not about being gifting. It's about just having that awareness. You know, everybody can have their awareness. Uh, you might have it instilled in you, but you can also develop the awareness, you know. And AQ is just a combination for me. What AQ is, is a combination of wisdom and curiosity. Uh, curiosity, because that's what gets you to follow this golden thread because it doesn't have to be logical curiosity is like this where do i go next how can i solve another problem and wisdom is best described by alan watts he says the knowledgeable man has to learn something new every day but the wise man has to unlearn something new every day and so wisdom is about unlearning and letting go of old bullshit so you're not dragging it with you into the future now you combine curiosity and a clean slate what are you you're adaptable Obviously, you're adaptable because what's making you stuck in the past? Old ideas, old stories, memories that are hurtful. What's keeping you stuck in the past? Logical thinking. The future must be similar to the past. Otherwise, who am I in this future? So that combination of curiosity and wisdom is what I wrote about in my third book, Foresight, is that that's the golden formula to become adaptable. Sure. I mean, you you spoke a little bit about um, not knowing the future. And we're going this way. And I think we were all taught and, you know, certainly in goal setting was, you know, have the end in mind. So have the end in mind. And you mentioned a couple of things like, you know, good health and those sorts of things. But w- what I'm seeing is a bigger trend towards now customer experience, the customer satisfaction. So not necessarily about profits or growth, but actually about diving in and understanding what the customer wants and learning these technology tools to help you get these insights to be adaptable to where they're going. Are you seeing that as a big trend for the future? Um, What I'm seeing is a move towards transparency. And what consumers want is to know that you're treating your staff well. So actually the priority is employees first. What else your consumers want, if they are wide awake, is want more upliftment in communities. We are gone and done with globalization. I don't think globalization will come back. Uh, The sign of markets popping up everywhere and artisanal bakeries and beer makers. It's almost become the cool thing to do to go barefoot to your local fruit and veg market and buy vegetables and Instagram it. You know, you're building social capital now. All of a sudden by that, 
and not by wearing a Rolex and having a fancy car. So third for me are consumers. Fourth are shareholders. Because if shareholders understand that we have now arrived in a world of complexity, short-termism is your cancer. You cannot create constant growth over and over because it's going to burst and you're going to tire your employees out. And if you're looking for profitability and efficiency, you're moving away from your community and moving it to try and become the cheapest possible where you can. You think your consumers aren't watching you. You think your consumers aren't making judgments on you. So consumers are looking for you to uplift your employees, looking to uplift your communities, and then for the consumer to be involved. And in that process, you build long-term loyalty or super fans. And these super fans don't give a shit what your price is because they're in it with you now. You know what I mean? Secondary is price. So think about Elon Musk and what he's done. He's built this incredible level of trust. We like trust them implicitly. If tomorrow he had to bring out avocados, we're like, yeah, we're going to buy his avocados because I don't know why, because they must be really good avocados. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done that. Another one that I think we do well here is Woolworths. Woolworths has built this incredible level of trust. They really go out of their way to build community. They really go out of their way to build farming for the long term, something that they never were asked to do. There was no standard. Yeah. They created their own standard. So, you know, you and I go yeah. to Woolworths, but we don't really check price. I mean, look, we're privileged enough not to check price, but that's not the point. The point is they've created that trust for us to have third in tier of consumers being the focus. So for me, the trend is transparency. Um, yeah. And that's really what customers are wanting. So funny, I did a podcast with Ian Furr. I don't know if you know Ian from Sorbet. Yes, of course. About two days ago. Yes, yes. And I think he's yeah. a shining example of, he, his principles are put his people first and he looks after yeah. his people and then they look after his customers. And it's almost like if you're doing it yeah. any, any other way, your, your, your people are serving you and then they've got their back towards the customer. So it's so funny that you, that you mentioned that. So, I mean, you mentioned... Woolworths as well. Are there others that you're seeing are, are really getting this right in South Africa? This 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 drive to really look after and empower their their people. Um, look, I think the I'll give you one example that most most people don't know about. I mean, it's easy to want to pinpoint the discoveries and the R and Bs because they've got the money and the luxury to really invest in their people, and that's all good. But you know, my my co co author Iraj Abidjan, one of his biggest businesses is. Um, those Nachis that you buy from Woolworths, they've got little stickers on them. Um, they're always at the front of the shop. They're super delicious, right? Um, yeah. And he's a big, he's a, he's, it's a huge business. You know, it's, it's uh, 28 farms around the world. I mean, it's just really growing exponentially. But do you know that one of their major, major drives is employee equity? And so all their farm staff have schooling, have equity, have women empowerment. There's a massive drive around that. And look at the business. You know, they've, they've took just farm workers and grown them into managers. And that business is shooting the lights out, um, like many agricultural businesses because of COVID. But there are pockets of this that are happening out there. You might not even have known about it, but just energetically and just with an, with with that drive, you feel you feel comfortable with brands like this, and you want to be able to support them because of them just being better and just going yeah. out of their way to be more conscious without anybody asking them to. For sure. So I know that last time we spoke, you were going to go to New York. I think you went to the UK. You, you are staying in Dubai. I don't know where you are now. If it's Cape Town, I think you are. You said you cycled to Hell Bay earlier. Yeah, love it. Yes, yes. Uh, I lived there for yeah. like twenty years. 
Um, so, so, I mean, you're in South Africa now. What are your thoughts, firstly, around South Africa and Africa? Are you, are you still looking at traveling? Has COVID changed your perspective of where you're at? Um, and, you know, so, some of the things that I saw is that you're writing these books and you're very generously allowing people to get hold of those books for free. A lot of the conferences that you did, conferencing, some of the conferences we do are for free. These business models are changing massively. How do you see the future of sharing these sorts of this, this wisdom that you have, these insights you have? How do you see it evolving post-COVID? Do you still see yourself well, traveling you so the much. world? or? Yeah. yeah. Well, th- thank, thank you for the compliment. I appreciate that. I initially wanted to go live in New York because I wanted to be around what I imagined to be the world's best at what they did. I spent uh, three months there and I hated every flipping minute of it. <laughs> so <laughs> I hated it. I, I wanted to love it. I just couldn't. Did, did yeah, you miss the cycles, yeah. the people, the food? What was it? It was just the absolute noisiness, chaos and dirty city. It just, you know, I think it's got a... I think it's got a it's got an idea in our heads of what New York is, but when you get there, it's very grungy, it's very dirty, it's very aggressive. There's not enough nature around. It's a concrete jungle. Yeah. I don't know if I want to be maybe because I lived in Cape Town, I couldn't adjust to it. So I decided that New I, York. I couldn't wasn't find my a home. decent coffee there. But that is me too. I just I looked everywhere. I looked coffee. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was yeah, one yeah. place somewhere, 52nd Avenue, that we went to, but yeah. it, some Australian that owned it, but it wasn't that great. Blue, I don't know if they're milk. Blue Bottle. Was it called Blue Bottle? Yeah, yeah, Blue yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. And to think about it, that you and I are naming one coffee shop in New York that drink coffee, <laughs> I mean, come on. What, what does that even tell you? Anyway, anyway, I mean, we're snobs, obviously, complaining about coffee. But um, addicts, so New York addicts. wasn't for me. Addicts, yeah, yeah. So I, I tried to make New York home. It wasn't home. And then I decided to live between Dubai and London um, because the summer in Dubai is unbearable. The winter in London is unbearable. So it was a wonderful mix between the two. And so that was my life. You know, I was moving between those because I was being booked around the world, speaking at conferences. It was much, much better being based in that part of the world. And then COVID happened. And, you know, with COVID happening, I reprioritized what was important to me. And the first thing was family is I wanted to be with my family. I wanted to be with my friends. And um, I was still building up my networks in those cities. And so I decided immediately, it was like a 24-hour decision. I saw Italy going to shut down. I saw Spain going to shut down. And I was like, there's no way this isn't coming here. And, and within 24 hours, I put everything in storage and I was, I was living with my parents on their farm. And so um, will I go back? Yes, absolutely, Rolf. I will. I love South Africa. I love Africa. Look, I was yeah. born in Africa. I'm, I'm born and bred here. But I do think that just geographically, we are far, far away from the world. And I also yeah. think that we have many, many challenges and a lot of healing still to do here in South Africa. What I love about Dubai is that there's no history. There's like, yeah. there's minimal history. All they focus on is the future. It's almost like yeah. they've got this 20, 70 year plan. They've got a minister of artificial intelligence. They've got a minister of blockchain. They've got a minister of happiness. You know, they've taken care of all the basics. And now we're thinking about the future. The problem with Africa and South Africa is that we still have a lot of work to do in order to get to a point of thinking about the future in a more positive way. You know, there's a lot of, and I, and I don't want to take anything away from anybody because the trauma is real. The healing yeah. needs to happen. It might make yeah. generations to happen. So I'm not so much leaving South Africa. I'm exploring new adventures. And in order for my voice to be louder in the world and for me to share what I'm doing more widely, 
I just need to be in different and bigger circles, you know, more than anything yeah. else. So that's your second part of your question. The third part of your question is that over COVID, what I decided to do was try and share as much as my work, as much as, as far and wide as possible for free. So I did yeah. free talks on Facebook. I did free books. I, I try to give much because I could understand that people were in huge need of some clarity. And so I yeah. did that for a while. And look, our business is changing continuously. You know, I've already been yeah. booked for a couple on stage events in Europe this year. So I'm really looking forward to going back to that. I think we are craving human engagement and interaction. So yes, we'll have a lot more Zooms going on like we are doing now. And they're very cool. But boy, do we miss networking and talking to friends and meeting new people and walking down a city that, you know, you've never been to. And so I think that 2022 is going to be a massive growth into that world again. I think traveling will pick up in a massive way again. We're craving it. You know, we've been almost captives of our homes and our cities for the last sort of a year and a bit. And uh, if we've got the privilege and the luxury to be able to travel, I definitely see that coming back. And I think stages and events will kick off again because, you know, we're desperate for that engagement and uh, for that human engagement and then we'll prioritize it coming out of this. And do you think that the business model will, will stay the same? Because, I mean, I think one of the things you were saying is you've got to stop where you were during COVID and look to the future. And so we do events and we do publishing. And so we had to stop all our live events, both awards and conferencing. And we did the same as you. We offered free attendance and we obviously had our sponsors. And we grew, we saw a massive impact in terms of our market and we helped a lot of people and our ratings went through the roof. It was phenomenal. And, I, and, I, and I'm thinking and listening to you, you don't want to go back to the past, but there are certain things that is important, like schools, for instance. We can go online, but having that interaction with schools, are events, do you think, still going to have that commercial uh, um, drive for people to go and, and, to, and to pay for good quality content yes i absolutely think that that is going to happen even more than ever before and if you think about what twitter is going they're going subscription and you're starting to see that a lot of these sort of well thought out platforms are starting to charge and i think it's it's well worth it because we have we you know what it is uh Rolf, is we craved choice and we all wanted more and more choice and if you just think about fashion we went from Woolworths or whoever, Truworths in South Africa, giving us two lines a year, winter, summer. And then they got really fancy and went spring, summer, autumn, winter. And then we were like, okay, every time you went to the shop, the stuff was the same. And then sort of Zara arrived and H&M arrived. And every time you go into the shops, there's something new. It's almost like, okay, there's too much now. It's like too much choice. We're just going back to normal <laughs> colors. Look, you're wearing blue, I'm wearing black. It's like, okay, we're done with all that choice. We just want simplicity again. So I think the same thing has happened with um, eventing. And I think the same thing has happened with information is that we will become more um, selective for quality yeah. rather than just yeah. like more, more, more. And I think we're done with more, more, more. We, we bored of more, more, more. And you can see this and us moving from, I've been watching this trend. It's moved from brick and mortar to digital. And it's now moving from digital to virtual. It's almost like we want mm. live engagement. We're actually even bored of digital engagement. There's just so much mm. of it. I don't want to engage with a podcast that's two weeks old, God forbid, because there's so much yeah. new stuff coming out. And so if you think about Clubhouse, live podcasts, yeah. Twitter's just brought out their own thing, live discussions. And so yeah. I think we're moving towards a more virtual live engagement 
but I do think that events will kick off again. I think there'll be less corporate internal events. Those will be expensive and can be done on Zoom, but the external facing ones and those sort of things, yeah, I think they'll happen without a doubt. Right? So these events are going to happen. We're going to get all these people going to events and hopefully lots of people to learn things. So what can they learn from John? Like what's, what's your tips to take complicated, complex things? Because you go really in depth. You do a lot of research, but you're so good at presenting. You really are fantastic. And so I think you capture people's attention. You're, you're affable. You're nice. You've got all those sorts of things. But I think it's not... I don't think it's luck. Like I get this sense that you've got a very clear way that you do what you do. What are, what are your principles for success for, for, for putting on a, a great show? Thank you. You're really, you're really uh, full of compliments. Thank you, Rolf. Um, I think a couple of things happen when I'm on stage. And I think they happen without me realizing they're happening is I want to ambush my audience in a comedic, fun way to realize that they're in shit. And when I say they're in shit, they're in shit because their old way of thinking is going to drown them in the future. And it's, you know, I wrote a chapter in one of my books and I said, you know, the future of food will never be changed by angry vegans. And the reason for that is that nobody likes to be scolded. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Nobody likes to be said, here's 10 things leaders need to do. You need to storytell in a way that people are amused and then realize that the story is about them. And it's, I don't know why that's come about. It's just the way I've done it in the past. And also I think what I like to do is I like to bring in surprising examples that people don't think a future strategist should be talking about. So I talk about quantum science and the fact that your reality is what you focus on and then let's not even talk about anything. Let's just focus on that. The fact that every time you want to buy a new car, you start seeing it everywhere. Who did that? Was that BMW? Did they know that you wanted to buy a BM and then start plonking it where you need to see it? No, but in those circumstances, we accept it. But in circumstances of life, the things we don't like, we think that's not us. That's everybody else. That's his fault, she's fault, the government's fault. So I think it's the combination of this surprising information, the combination of storytelling in a humorous way, also showing my examples and my mistakes and then ambushing the audience when they walk away to go, damn it, I'm stuck here. Now I realize he was actually talking about us. And I think that combination has just put me in good stead, you know, and uh, I, I, I genuinely love what I do. I really, really love it. It's it's a gift for me to do it. And uh, I can't wait to get back on stage to start doing it. You know, even though I've been speaking to many people on Zoom, but that engagement with human beings and storytelling, I think it's in my blood. You know, my, my family are storytellers. My grandfather was a well-known poet. And so it's just one of those things. So storytelling. Eh? And I mean, when did you know, like, when did that change? When did, when did you know that this was your gift in life and that this was something that you wanted to pursue as your purpose? Right, because it definitely is. Thank you. Um, I was 40 years old, and my wife and I went to Santorini for my 40th birthday to celebrate. And we had this beautiful dinner. And in the dinner, we decided that our marriage wasn't working. And it was a very, it was a symbiotic conversation that we had, and we decided to call it a day. I then proceeded to have six months of the most horrific, I don't know, shattering of my reality, and realizing that I, this dream of family, my future memories of my marriage and family were gone. 
And in that shattering, I started asking new questions about why I'm here. What am I doing? Like, what, what am I needing to do? And I came out of that six months. And in fact, James Hollis, who's a young depth psychologist, written a book called The Midlife Passage from Misery to Meaning. And he says, every time you, you're going through this process of finding your purpose, you need to go through something called the dark woods. And the dark woods are scary, damp. You don't know when you're getting out of them. Nothing is familiar. And those six months were almost my dark woods. I didn't realize I was doing that. But letting go of my marriage and closing down the agency that I had pre-40, pre I went through the six months of dark woods. And I came out of it. And it was obvious that I needed to talk. It was, it was just such an obvious, it was obvious for me. I, I, can't, I can't explain it in any other way. And I immediately started speaking and immediately the right people were in the audiences at the right time. I got invited to the right conferences. And then next thing I had two or three public speaking companies hiring me and representing me. And then I wrote my first book, not realizing what any of that could be. That book became a huge bestseller. In that same space, I went to do an executive program at, at Singularity University in San Francisco. I became the first faculty member. This all happened within like six months, right? I mean, it was like almost from zero to hero. I, I didn't even know those were options for me. I mean, what would a guy that <laughs> only has watched Peter Diamandis on YouTube with like hero eyes thinking that I'm going to be sharing a stage with him? Who would even, I, would, I didn't even know it was a possibility. So yes, post that sort of rocket and funny, you know, it was a rocket. And what my first book was called, What's Your Moonshot? It's almost like this rocket that happened and it's just the momentum's kept going, you know, and uh, I'm getting better at what I do and, I'm researching more. I'm becoming also just growing into it. You know, as men, we grow into ourselves. And uh, I'm 45 and I'm, I'm feeling more me than I've ever felt. You know, crazy. Eh? I think it just shows that you've got to change and go with your instincts. And we only really know our career. They say at 35, but I mean, you found yours at 40. But um, how funny is that? Mm. I just want to finish off because I know we've taken a lot of your time. And just your, your thoughts on Africa and the future for Africa. Because I know that you're Look, looking think, at going yeah. outside. Yes, yes. Look, I think Africa has always been challenged because of the, I suppose, the colonization uh, from Europe and that idea that when they arrived, they took all the rights of the locals away. They decolonized, I mean, they colonized Africa. And that mindset has permeated generations and i think the biggest thing that africans suffer from is africanism we just don't think we're good enough there's very few africans that think they're good enough to play on the stage and i i can just speak about myself you know the first time i was booked for an international talk i shat myself for six weeks i was like oh my god what am i going to tell people in holland that they don't already know and the truth is they don't know much just because they're in Holland doesn't mean anything. So I think the biggest thing we have as Africans is to get over the mindset. That's the first thing. The second thing is once we can get over that mindset, are we able to mature in a way where we don't have leaders that are just killing the continent? And that's another thing that we have. We have very immature leadership. I think that right now in South Africa, we have Cyril. I'm a huge fan of Cyril, um, but yeah. previous generations and even the, some people who are currently in power are obviously immature and corrupt and just not in it for the greater good. And so until we can get those sorts of leaderships right, I just don't see Africa moving because we just don't have that opportunity. But on the bright side, and there is always a bright side, mm -hmm. is that technology is giving us access to information we've never had. Technology yeah. is giving us an opportunity to leapfrog in many ways. 
In fact, technology has got many ways helping us to overthrow some of these governments that deserve to be overthrown. And so technology is giving us a sense of playing more globally because of the access we have that's similar to everybody else in the world. But we yeah. also have to get over our own mindsets and we have to cultivate better leaders. And until we can get those two things right, no continent, no country can ever move forward. I mean, if you just think about what's happening in the Republican Party in America, you're dealing with unconscious leadership, you're dealing with greed, corruption, they themselves will implode because of that. So it's not an African issue. I think it's a global humanity issue. But as Africa, I'm always optimistic. I think everything is done in duality. There's always negative and positive, but I want to focus on an eight-year-old girl in Malawi that gets access to internet for the very first time, educates herself, changes a village, changes a family, changes a future, and changes a country. And that is very possible, and we see that a lot. So I want to put my focus on those things and share those stories rather than all the crap that's going on. Wow. John, it was so great to catch up with you, and uh, I'd love to catch up and, and go for a cycle with you uh, at some stage. Um Sure. Wishing you all the best luck for your talks for for Europe and around the world. And I'll be looking out for Thank your you. new books as well. 10,000 days. 10,000 days. That's right. 10,000 days. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks Ralph. so much for catching up.